Good morning, church. How's everyone feeling this morning? Feeling well? You should feel rested, correct? Right? Can I get an amen for falling backwards? Right? I said to the nine o'clock service that falling backwards is awesome. That extra hour of sleep is great. Springing forward is of the devil, and I'm not a fan of it, but falling backwards is great. And so that extra hour was very well appreciated in my home. I feel very rested, and I feel like we got some good sleep in the Smith family household, which is always important because sleep is just a great way to feel better, period, the end. It, it makes a big difference in your life. And so I hope you took advantage of the gift of an extra hour last week or last night. Uh, this previous week, my wife actually sent me a podcast and, and a little TED talk on the importance of sleep and how much it impacts your overall mental health and well-being, your physical health, and, and just so many benefits that come from sleeping well. And so we do need to take advantage of those sorts of opportunities in life. And, and I share that with you this morning because I have a question for us to begin our time together, which is, how is it that you typically de-stress, right? Like, how do you handle We know sleep is a great way to de-stress, but what are some other things that you might utilize in your life to de-stress? And I think that's an important question because I would imagine that we can all agree that 2020 has been slightly stressful, right? Keep in mind, stress is defined as anything that has changed. So it can be bad stress, which is what we often associate with it, but it can be good stress, right? You could get, uh, you know, a, a new job. You could uh, have a baby, right? There are all these things that are good that are still stressful. So stress is just change. But when you think about 2020, I think all of us would say we've encountered a whole lot of change. Everything about our world has been rocked in some capacity, and so it's been stressful. So how have you handled it? And how do you plan to continue to handle it, right, as we continue to live in these times? Well, I came across an article on, on the Mayo Clinic's website that gives us some tips on how it is that we can de-stress. And I thought I would share some of these with you, thinking that they might be good recommendations for us all this morning and as we move into the rest of the year. Uh, the first thing that they recommend on their list is to be active, right? We all know that that's a great option to exercise, to get outdoors, go on that hike, do something. It is medically proven that that is going to help you de-stress and improve your overall mindset. So stay active. Eat healthy. That's another great one. That's probably the one I struggle with the most because I know when I'm stressed, I like to stress eat. And, and my choice is rarely healthy, right? And so uh, making sure that we understand what we put in our body is going to obviously help us de-stress as well. Uh, they would list as number three, meditate. Uh, Mayo Clinic is obviously a secular institution, but I think when we read it from our perspective uh, as believers, we could substitute the word for meditate for prayer, right? There's something incredibly powerful about just being able to take all your concerns, your anxieties to the Lord in a spirit of prayer and what that does to our stress. Laugh more is a good one, right? And to be around people that'll help you laugh and make you laugh. Laughter is a great medicine for the heart and for the soul. Connecting with others, that's a great one. That's a huge one. That's part of why we gather, right? That's part of why we're here. We talked last week about how detrimental loneliness can be. And it's just not good for us physically, emotionally, mentally. And, and that's why we create space. And, and I'll use this as a, as a brief moment to just provide a pastoral word, especially for those that are still at home. Now, as we live through this pandemic and we adjust these changes in schools and churches, we try to figure out how do we accommodate people's comfort levels, obviously, and I, and I mean this with all sincerity, if you aren't comfortable getting out and connecting with people in whatever capacity that looks like, then continue to protect yourself, right? And do what you feel comfortable. But I also know that in today's climate, some of the things that COVID has introduced is just a level of convenience, right? That, that even church, right? It's just easier to wake up late and turn on the TV and do it in your pajamas. And so if, if we're doing things out of convenience, rather than concern and legitimate health concerns, then we're missing some of the greatest medicine that God gives us, which is the opportunity to connect with brothers and sisters. And so I would encourage you at home and even in your own life, whether it's church or other areas where you're getting a chance to meet with people, that is vitally important to us maintaining good health and stress levels, right? So community, it's huge. Not only that, sleep. We already talked about that, how important that is. They also recommend keeping a journal, processing your thoughts, your emotions, those sorts of things. And then number eight really stuck out to me. It said, be musical and be creative. And I loved that one because it just seemed to kind of resonate 
with some things that we experienced in our home. I, I would say that our family tries to strive for a lot of those things on that list, but one of my favorite things that we do in our house is we have uh, the very regular and fairly frequent Smith family dance party, right? It's not unusual if you were a fly on the wall in our home that occasionally you're just gonna hear the music start to blare from a kitchen, from a bedroom, and the Smith family's gonna start dancing. And I think there are some, some recent debates about who dances more, is it me or Jennifer? Uh, the kids are still waiting to render their verdict on that, though I'm trying to convince them that it's their dad. Uh, but I think the one that has the most potential, if you follow my wife on Facebook, is definitely our youngest son, David Wu. If you've seen some of his developing dance moves, that kid, he will bring, he'll bring it, all right? It's just a lot of fun. So we do this a lot. We'll just start dancing and listening to music, and it really is impressive or amazing to see how it changes the whole complexion of the room. What we've discovered in the midst of those Smith family dance parties is that it's really hard to stay upset or to stay stressed. So if one of us in that home is having a hard day or is worried about something and all of a sudden you start hearing music that's upbeat and seeing people around you dance and be silly, you can't help but smile and you can't help but kind of want to start to join in. And what we see is that that sort of joy and that sort of celebration is really contagious, right? It, it kind of has this cumulative effect of people around you. And so I, I, I say that to, to make that point for all of us that part of the things that we see in common in this list is that that joy that we long for that helps us de-stress really is contagious. I think that's a common assumption that we carry. The good news is, is that Harvard did a study and proved it. Okay, so now we can say it more definitively. But truly, there is a professor at the Harvard Medical School that did a study not too long ago that talked about how the happiness of others really impacts our overall being and our overall mindset. And so as we then benefit from their happiness and their joy, it then creates a chain reaction. We impact with our joy, the disposition and the spirit of other people. It truly becomes a contagious experience. And so I say that because I think we can all relate, right? We, we have people that we know that men, when they walk into the room, they can just suck the joy out of it, you know? And, and it's hard and you feel the tone change and you feel the stress level increase because of that disposition and that, that Saturday Night Live, Debbie Downer, wah, wah kind of experience with those folks, right? Versus the other people in our lives that walk in and it's just uplifting, right? And there's just laughter, there's, there's smiles, there's, there's joy. And that's, that's not just the sort of people that we wanna be around. Those are the sorts of people that we should be, right? We should be the source of joy and other people's lives. We should be able to, to prompt and be catalytic to that sort of contagious experience. Why is that? Because part of what we need to consider again this morning and constantly remind ourselves of is that there is no greater joy than the gift that we have in Jesus Christ. None. Nothing compares to it. So on those wonderful moments, in those wonderful seasons where joy is abundant, the gospel of Jesus Christ just intensifies it further. And on those dark moments, in those darker seasons where we're surrounded with trial and hardship and difficulty, even there, we can find a reason to be joyful. We can find a reason to sing. And I say that knowing that for many of us, when we've gone through those harder moments and those darker seasons, we can acknowledge, yeah, that sounds true, but man, it doesn't feel that way when I'm in the midst of it, right? When we're going through those hardships, it's very difficult to, to force joy often. And, and so part of what I wanna at least acknowledge is that the scripture is very clear. There is a place for lamenting. There's a place for, for mourning and for distress. And we see that time and time again. Those things are healthy as well. But in so many of those examples that we find in the scripture, be it the psalmist or some other narrative that you find in the scripture, more often than not, the person in the soul that is lamenting is able to point back to God's righteousness, his hope, his grace, and they still find a reason to sing. That's the beauty of the gospel. No matter what, we have a reason to sing, right? We have that joy. And so this is a philosophy that I think many of us can embrace and receive, but in my experience, what really brings it home is not just a concept being taught, but a testimony being shared. And that's part of what we're gonna do today, is, is to look in on the lives of many brothers and sisters that are facing tremendous hostility, 
and difficulty and hardship, and yet even in the midst of it, they find a reason to sing. Today is the International Day of Prayer for the Persecuted Church, and we like to make this a, an annual point of emphasis for us because it's important to have that sort of awareness of what so many other brothers and sisters around the world are going through and, and the many challenges and the many dangers and the many struggles that they're facing. So I was researching that um, this week, and I want to share with you some statistics. There are a lot of organizations that help capture these figures. Open Doors is a good one. Uh, Voice of the Martyrs is another good one. And they help track how, how persecution continues to exist and is how pervasive it is in different parts of the world and how it's intense in different countries. And so there's a lot of facts and figures that I could throw at you this morning. Let me give you a few. This is from the Open Doors website. They tell us that 260 million Christians experience high levels of persecution. 2,983 Christians are killed for their faith. This is all in the past year. 9,488 churches and other Christian buildings have been attacked. 3,711 believers have been detained without trial, have been arrested, sentenced, or imprisoned. And now those, those numbers, when you really stop and think about them, are, are fairly overwhelming. Right? There's, there's quite a lot to process with that. It's a, it's a significant amount of 260 million Christians facing persecution. But one of the things that I loved about the Open Doors website was the way that it brought some color and context to those numbers, right? To understand what that often really, um, what that experience actually feels like. So if you read through their homepage, they'll make these, these little one or two sentence glimpses into the world of persecution saying, you know, it's a woman in India who watches her sister being dragged off by Hindu nationalists, wondering if her sister is dead or alive. Uh, it's a man who has uh, been woken in a prison camp in North Korea because he was unconscious because of a previous beating, only to be awakened to have another one. Right? It's a woman in Nigeria who has finally escaped Boko Haram after being kidnapped there and is pregnant and returns to her village only to discover that they are going to reject her and her baby. Right? It's, it's children walking to church, laughing and talking, when all of a sudden an explosion occurs claiming the lives of so many in that surrounding area on a Easter morning in Sri Lanka. That's what those numbers represent. That's the persecuted church. Right, and as overwhelming as those, those numbers and those stories can be, I love what the website points out for us. Let me share this quote from their website. And they say, these numbers are heartbreaking, and yet they do not tell the whole story. James chapter 1 says, consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, when you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Website continues, that joy is what we see when we hear and work with Christians all over the world who suffer because they serve Jesus. God cares for his people, and he will never leave or forsake them. Isn't that remarkable? That for so many within the church that face some of the most difficult situations and some of the most dire of circumstances, the common denominator that you find time and time again when getting their story is joy. And so my hope is that as we venture into this conversation today and have an opportunity to consider the testimony of the persecuted church, that the joy that we find, even in those situations, can be contagious for you and for me, right? That, that we can be inspired in our own situations, in our own circumstances, and be reminded once again that we always have a reason to sing of the greatness of our God. And so with that being said, before we dive into the text, let's just take a moment and truly pray for the persecuted church. Would you pray with me? Father in heaven, we do um, ask that for every heart and soul that is represented by one of these numbers that we've referenced this morning, that in this moment you would send your spirit to comfort and to strengthen every single one of them that face persecution. God, that you would give them the resolve in their faith, you would give them the comfort of their wounds, you would begin to heal them of any pain, Father, that you would truly just embolden them to once again be faithful witnesses for you. And Father, as we consider their situations 
I pray first and foremost that we would always be burdened for our brothers and sisters in such circumstances, but more importantly on this moment, in this moment this morning, God, that we would be changed by the testimony of their faithfulness, by the story of their joy that they find even in the midst of hardship, God, that we too could then go about our lives with that same sense of conviction and hope and promise to be joyful in all circumstances that you bring to us. Father, we ask that you would join us now in spirit and in truth as we dive into your word that it would once again found, be found to be living and active. Father, that it would lead us into the joyful praise that you so richly deserve. And we pray this in Jesus' precious and holy name. Amen. Amen. All right, y'all, grab your Bibles and turn to Matthew chapter 10. As we always say, if you don't have a Bible, please let us know. We'd be happy to get you one. Matthew chapter 10. We've been walking through this the last several weeks, and as I mentioned along the way, we, we kind of uh, got out of order by design. A couple of weeks ago, we jumped ahead in this discourse as we had Nick Pitts here to share with you all about how do we engage in the public and political arena uh, with a Christ-like mindset. And uh, now we're getting back on track, kind of picking up where, where Nick left off after deviating back beforehand last, last week. And so we'll be able to continue on in Matthew chapter 10, but part of what I want to say as we uh, begin to read here is that this theme of persecution, this idea of persecution, was already introduced two weeks ago when Nick was with you. Now, because we had asked him to speak at it from the lens of how do we engage in the political arena, we looked at this theme of persecution that was found in those verses that he taught on more metaphorically, right? When you're brought before governors and kings, it says in the text that you'll be flogged, right? That was a, a, a literal experience of persecution. We looked at that more metaphorically. But my point for us this morning is that this idea of persecution has already been introduced, right? And Jesus has already talked about it from the, from the lens of these governing authorities. And so now as we continue back in this discourse, we're going to pick up uh, in verse 21 and see how Jesus further describes what persecution might look like. So follow along with me in chapter 10, beginning in verse 21. It says, brother will betray brother to death and a father his child. Children will rebel against their parents and have them put to death. You will be hated by everyone because of me, but the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. And so when you are persecuted in one place, flee to another. Truly I tell you, you will not finish going through the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. The student is not above the teacher nor servant above his master. It is enough for students to be like their teachers and servants like their masters. If the head of the house has been called Beelzebul, how much more the members of his household. So do not be afraid of them, for there is nothing concealed that will not be disclosed or hidden that will not be made known. What I tell you in the dark, speak in the daylight. What is whispered in your ear, proclaim from the roofs. Do not be afraid of those who can kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, be afraid of the one who can destroy both soul and body in hell. All right, we're going to stop there for this morning. As I read through this text and was thinking about it this past week, there were kind of three distinct categories that, that jumped out at me in terms of how we could maybe consider it this, 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 uh, this morning together. The first is how Jesus further describes persecution, right? It's already been introduced, but now he describes it even a little bit further. And I want us to take some time to look at how it is described in this particular section of verses. And then he, he kind of progresses and explains, here's why you can expect persecution. Here's the reason for it. And then from there, he, he kind of launches into a third element for us to consider this morning, which is then what should your response be to it? So th those are the three kind of categories we'll look at. What is, what is the persecution that is described? Why is it occurring? And what's the response? And so to begin, what's interesting about the way persecution is described here is that, as I mentioned a second ago, he's already referenced the governing authorities. And I think that's something that you and I can, can easily identify with. We're, we're not oblivious to the fact that there are regimes and authorities that exist around this world that are highly oppressive and hostile and antagonistic towards the gospel. And consequently, the church and the believers that exist in those places are frequently under the threat of persecution at the hands of governing authorities. I think this is, this is a common teaching that is something that uh, was, was taught many thousands of years ago and still exists today. What makes this next section so jarring and so sobering and, and so unfortunate is to realize that persecution is not confined or constrained just to governing authorities, right? That it actually can penetrate and invade the most intimate spaces, right? The most 
uh, protected areas that should be designed for refuge and healing and safety. It, it can actually occur in the home amongst the family, right? The words of governors and kings have now been replaced with brother against brother, father and child, children and parents, right? This comprehensive picture of how even the gospel can, can create this sense of hostility within these bonds that were designed for unconditional love. But now here we see words describing these relationships, words like betrayal, rebellion, right? that this begins to define a new concept of the family. Right? And it's not just, well, there's tension. Right? It's more than just, well, I'm frustrated and we disagree. It's betrayal, it's rebellion to death. It's a very sobering concept and discussion and reality that Jesus is presenting here to his disciples. When I read a passage like this, it, it reminds me of the testimony of a man that I met in Niger, uh, a man by the name of Tom Bacoy. I was serving as a missions pastor at First Arlington, and we had workers that were stationed in Niger, and so I was visiting them on one occasion, and he wanted to take me to uh, this village in Tarodi, named a village named Tarodi, to meet this man, Tom McCoy, to hear his testimony. And uh, it's a, one of the most powerful testimonies I've ever heard in my life, and I don't have time to go into all the details of it this morning. But to give you a quick synopsis, essentially, Tom McCoy was an imam. And if you don't know what an imam is, an imam is the religious leader for a Muslim village or area. All right, He's kind of the, the resident scholar, more or less. And so he was a well-established imam in the area of Niger and even had foreign influence. Uh, there are certain other uh, Islamic countries that want to make sure that Islam maintains its power and its sustainability. So they were sending him money and providing all sorts of, of luxury and comfort that many other people in his situation don't uh, get a chance to benefit from. And so he was well-established and had all these things that were contributing to his overall livelihood. And then he has these miraculous dreams. And that's the part I don't have time to go into today, but another sermon someday. Miraculous dreams. And through that encounter with Jesus, he decides to leave Islam and follow Jesus. He walked in to the folks that, you know, he reported to, and he said, you can have it all. I don't need any of it. And he left it all for Jesus. And as he began to make this decision... Uh, the, the reverberations of that decision began to move throughout the village, and he began to hear rumors of family members, uncles, relatives that were so angry that they were ready to threaten him with his life and force him out of his village. So he's laying in bed one night in his hut when his mother comes into his room and wakes him up. She's distressed, she's distraught, she's crying, and she begins to beg and to plead with Tom McCoy, saying, I... I gave you life, I brought you into this world, I nursed you, I cared for you, I protected you. Please leave this Jesus. And he listened to her beg and plead his own mother. And he looked at her and he said, Mother, I know you gave me life. Can you give me eternal life? And she looked at him and she said, you know I can't. And he said, then why would I leave the one who can? And it pulled this family apart. So this is not a metaphor. This is not just some ancient practice. This exists today, all over the world. And while I am hopeful that many of you come from homes where you have been encouraged in your faith, I'm, I'm smart enough and have been around enough to know that for many of you that has not been the case. That you have felt the tension that your faith can bring upon your relationships and how challenging those can be. And so let me just speak to that for a moment to be very clear that I believe Jesus in the gospel affirms the family and wants the family to flourish in light of the gospel. But he is also very clear. Your love resides with him first and foremost, even if it costs you your family. And so, can you say that in your own life? If it costs you your family, if it costs you something greatly, would you still cling to your love 
for Christ because we know that that's exactly the sort of thing that the gospel demands and desires. So a very jarring reality to see that this persecution intrudes even upon the family dynamic, but then Jesus takes it a step further and tells his disciples, in fact, it's not just brother against brother and father against child and children against parents. Everyone's gonna hate you. (laughs) What a pep talk, right? As Jesus is sending them out, he's like, hey, good news. Everyone's like, they don't like you. Everyone, now you see the totality with which he's speaking about this and, and the comprehensive nature of this persecution and this resistance. Now, this is pretty significant because think about it. The, the disciples and Jesus himself come from a Jewish background. They know what the law teaches and they know that the law says you are not supposed to hate your neighbor. Right? They know that that's not allowed. So what Jesus is saying indirectly, it's not explicitly spelled out there for you in the text, is, hey, they're gonna hate you and you're not allowed to hate them back. We never respond to hate with hate. A good thing to keep in mind this week. Right? That's never the answer. Right? And so Jesus says, it doesn't matter if they hate you. Be prepared for it. They're going to resist you. You don't get to do the same. Right? That's implied here, I believe, in this teaching. But the totality of this hatred is very uh, interesting to me. I think it demands a certain consideration. And I started thinking this week, what? Why is the gospel met with such resistance? You ever thought about that? It's like it's one thing to know that persecution exists, but, but why to that level? I mean, think about what the message of the gospel is, right? There's a loving God who gave his son to die for you, to forgive you of your sins so that you could dwell with him in life eternal. That's good news. Why is it so hated? Right? And even if it's not like, okay, I don't believe it, why do you still have to hate others for believing it? It's really interesting when you stop and think about it. And one of the only conclusions I could come up with this week was to really just recognize just how sorrowful and, and deflating and depraved the human condition really is. That our heart outside of Jesus can be led to a very, very dark place. That there is evil in the world that is constantly and actively resisting the spread and the advancement of the gospel. It's real. And as a result, we need hope. Right? We need something to hold on to. And that's exactly what Jesus gives them. Right? Even though it's so total in his nature, he says, but those who stand firm to the end, you will be saved. And that's what draws us in, especially that word saved, right? It means literally to be saved from peril, to be rescued from danger, exactly what you need in the face of persecution. And I think all of us can relate, no matter what sort of suffering or trials or circumstances we've gone through, when we hear that word, that's what gets our heart to leap in our chest. Yes, that's what I want. I want to be saved. I want to be rescued from this body of sin and death. That's what I long for. Of course we long for it. Here's what makes what Jesus said so powerful and so difficult. The challenge for us is that we often want saving now. I need it now, God. I I need to be set free from this pain. I need to be set free from this anguish. I need to be set free from the suffering now. How much longer do I need to wait, right? That's what we often struggle with. And so when Jesus says, hey, don't worry about persecution, you're gonna be saved, let's not miss the fact that he prefaces it with, those who stand firm. That phrase means patiently endure. It's not immediate. You have to have a patient endurance with suffering. And and maybe we can kind of cozy up to that idea and go, okay, I can wait, but, but how long? How long do I have to endure this, God? How long do I have to go through this trial? A year? Two years, how long? And Jesus says, to the end. (laughs) That could be the end of the season of suffering, could be the end of your life, could be to the end of the age. Patiently endure to the end. That's a very powerful word, and I wanna make sure that we understand the context of the greater scripture that teaches why this is so necessary. Right, because as we already pointed to in the, in the book of James, James chapter one, it says, consider it pure joy when you face many trials. Why? 
because it produces something in you. It produces perseverance. It produces patient endurance. Okay, that's great, but why is that so necessary? And then we go to Romans, Romans chapter five, and it says, yes, glory in your sufferings because you know that your suffering is going to produce perseverance, patient endurance. And what is that gonna produce? It's gonna produce character. And character is going to produce hope. And the hope that God has poured out into our hearts will not disappoint us. So let me say this as clearly as I can to you, church. No matter what you're going through, no matter what suffering, no matter what struggle, no matter what hardship, it is meaningful. And you may go through it in the midst of it and go, this feels unfair, this feels unjust, this feels arbitrary or random and all those different things. But let me remind you that it is accomplishing something in you if you stand firm with the gospel. It is producing a character within you that will give birth to a glorious hope that points you back to Jesus. That's how saving works with patient endurance, right? And so it's a beautiful description of hope in the midst of a very difficult reality of persecution. So that's how it's described. Now, before we move to the next consideration this morning, which is why is it going to occur, let me point out to you also this random verse in verse 23 that is a very difficult verse to interpret. In fact, as I was studying it this week, a lot of scholars would say it's one of the most difficult verses in the entire New Testament. So I at least need to acknowledge it and reference it for a moment. The reason it's so difficult is the way it concludes when it says, when the Son of Man comes. Okay, and so a lot of scholars are like, well, what does that mean? Like, when he comes at the end of their journey, when he comes back for good, well, like, what are we talking about? And so there's a lot of different ways that folks interpret it. Let me just give you the one that seemed to resonate the most with me, that there are other ways to, to look at it. What, what, what I tended to, to gravitate towards is an understanding that son of man is another phrase that is similar to uh, kingdom of heaven in this particular context. So Jesus has burst onto the scene saying the kingdom of heaven is near over and over and over again. And so when he says son of man comes, he's, he's pointing to an enunciation of the kingdom, right? And so most likely what he's pointing to is the death, burial, crucifixion, resurrection, ascension of Jesus, right, that is going to be a full announcement of the kingdom. And so he's saying, listen, before you finish going through all these towns, that announcement is going to take place. And there will be a shift in the story of salvation history. By that I mean, at this point, salvation history has been fully focused on the Jews, right, in the nation of Israel. They are the center of God's plan. But after the resurrection and ascension of Jesus, it expands to the nations, it expands to the ends of the earth and the Gentiles become a critical part of God's plan of salvation. So, so that seems to be what is taking place here. Jesus is pointing to that, that moment of him being revealed fully as the Messiah and that the lost sheep of Israel are gonna have this moment of shifting. So anyway, it's a really interesting verse and a lot of scholars wrestle with it. For us, what I would point out to you is the point that Jesus says, when you encounter persecution in these towns, flee. Right, which I think is important because even though Jesus is saying that persecution is inevitable, he's also saying, don't seek it out, right? We're people of peace. Don't go and stir up the controversy. Don't go and create the resistance so that you can claim this, this badge of, of martyrdom or whatever it is. But, but when you face it, flee, right? But also know that it's, it's likely inevitable. And so with the inevitability of persecution, I think the next paragraph becomes really important. Why? Why is it happening? Why is this going to occur this way? And this is where we get Jesus describing things in a very eloquent way by making these comparisons of student to teacher and servant to master, right? No student is above their teacher, no servant is above their master. If they call me Beelzebul, then how much more so my household? And so essentially what Jesus is saying here is that if, if I'm going to suffer, so will my followers. And that's a, that's a pretty significant statement for us, that essentially what Jesus is saying is that this suffering is inevitable because I myself am gonna go through it. Now, we can read that from our perspective and know what's about to happen, right? We know that he's about to be arrested and falsely accused and beaten and flogged and crucified, right? We know what suffering Jesus is about to endure. So when we read a passage like this, we're sitting there going, okay, if Jesus is willing to suffer to the point of death, then so should I. That's the sort of, if, if it's expected of him, I'm not greater than he is. So the idea that I should be spared of it, 
or not be willing to commit to that point is ridiculous. Right? That's exactly what he endured himself, and so how much more so shouldn't we have that same mentality? Now, the disciples haven't seen that play out yet. And so the way Jesus presents it to them is he says, if I've been called Beelzebul, then what do you think they're going to think of you? And so let's make sure we understand that. Beelzebul is the name that was assigned at this point in time to the prince of demons. So, so think about the significance of that statement. This is more than just Jesus kind of being frustrated with name calling. right? Like, like this is God in bodily form, right? Taking on flesh, dwelling among us, and the people that he is walking among look at him and see him as the prince of demons. Referring to the Messiah as the prince of demons rather than the prince of peace, right? This tension and the hostility was undeniable. And so how much more so those that were going to follow him, right? And so what we need to consider when we think about the why for this, or for me, some several implications, at least two implications that I want us to think through this morning, right? The first is just that suffering is to be expected, right? Essentially, an invitation into discipleship with Jesus Christ is an invitation to share in his sufferings. That, that is a clear teaching of the gospel, right? So let's make sure that we understand it. He is not some genie that is gonna spare you from a life of pain. Not in this world, right? And so, so that's to be embraced and accepted. Here's where I struggle, and this is where I want us to think about it. If you're like me, you read that and you go, okay, I get it, but if we can be honest, I don't know that many of us in here have really faced persecution the way that Jesus just described it and the way that so many brothers and sisters face it across the world. And so how do we connect to this? How, how do you relate to it when you see that suffering is inevitable, but then when you look in on your life, you go, but I don't know that I've really ever been persecuted that way. Well, I think there are a couple of things that I would ask you to consider. The first is gratitude, <laughs> right? To recognize that we are afforded an incredible gift of freedom and, and to recognize that so many others don't have that. And that while many of you may come from a home where you have felt the tension of what it means to follow Jesus, and it has created stress on those relationships, I, I reason to believe that many of us come from a home that supports our faith, or at least if they're indifferent and against it, they're not going to result in threatening you with your life. And so from all perspectives, that we would maintain a sense of gratitude of the gift and the comfort and the luxuries and the freedom we've been afforded, and then to take that gratitude and steward those gifts well. To recognize that place of privilege and opportunity to say, well, then what am I doing with this freedom to help those who are less fortunate? What am I doing with this gift to make sure that those who are oppressed are finding relief, encouragement, comfort, or whatever it is that they may need? That's, that's the first thing I would consider. The second thing I would ask myself is if I look at the gospel and it says suffering is inevitable and I don't see a whole lot of suffering in my life, then maybe I need to think about whether or not I'm actually taking the risk that God is calling me to. <laughs> maybe the reason suffering is absent from our lives is because we've insulated ourselves from it. Right? We've created Christian bubbles. And the only world we walk and interact in is the one that's going to affirm the gospel. And we haven't really stepped into the world of darkness and brokenness that is inherently going to resist it. So maybe we need to be a little bit more courageous. Maybe we need to take some greater risks. And even though that may not mean that we find some hardship in terms of, of physical persecution, we will probably find resistance when we step out in the world with the message of Christ. So maybe we just need to step out more and take risks. Or the third implication is, yeah, okay, the gospel calls us into suffering, but I haven't really experienced persecution and suffering. So maybe the third thing is, well, you haven't yet but he may call you to. Things can change here. He may call you to another world where it very much is a reality, another country, another nation, another context. So are you ready? If it did happen today, could you demonstrate this sort of resolve and faithfulness? Don't ever think that you're immune to it because it can change in a moment. Are you ready? There are a lot of ways that we can consider it. So the, the first implication is to see the inevitability and the, the merging of suffering and the discipleship with Jesus Christ. Here's the second thing that I would want us to consider with what Jesus says is the reason for us to consider it. 
is, is really then the power of empathy that we have with Christ. One of the things I love so much about what Jesus has just said is that we have a picture here that is not Jesus sitting in some ivory tower sending his disciples off into harm's way saying, good luck. What we see here is Jesus is saying, I'm actually gonna go before you. I'm gonna walk through this. And so when you encounter hardship and persecution, you can take heart because I know exactly how you feel. I'm walking with you in the fire. I'm walking with you in the pain. Do we realize how incredibly profound that is? That when we cry out to the creator of the universe in pain and agony and anguish, he says, I know how you feel. And he does. That's incredible. He is with us, which is part of what leads us to this last category for us to consider this morning. What makes it so powerful is that it brings us back into the very essence of this gospel, which is do not be afraid. That's the response. That's the response to persecution. You have nothing to fear. Why? Because I am with you. I'm going through this with you. You don't have to fear them. We should be some of the most fearless people on the face of the planet. And Jesus elaborates on that point. Let me, let me kind of work at it in reverse by pointing your attention to verse 28 first, and then we'll go back, go back and look at verses 26 and 27. Verse 28, he says, you shouldn't fear them who can only kill the body but do nothing to the soul. Rather, fear the one who can kill both body and soul in hell. Again, not exactly the most uplifting statement, but one that's very important for us to consider. A reminder to each of us that all of us are going to stand before our king and give an account for our lives, right? And so we absolutely need to have that at the forefront of our minds. But, but what I love about it even more so in terms of encouraging us is that it's this reminder that no matter what happens to us in this life, no matter what persecution or resistance you face, no matter what they do to you to physically or to the body, they cannot touch your soul. <laughs> That's yours. And you can give it to God. Right? What a beautiful reminder of the way in which God protects us even in that moment, right? And that we don't have anything to fear in this life because we're created for the life that is to come, right? But what I really love is verses 26 and 27, right? You don't need to fear these things because what is currently hidden will be disclosed. What is talked about in secret will be talked about in the daylight. What is whispered will be proclaimed from the rooftops. I love this. What Jesus is saying is that right now, people don't fully know, right? There are whispers, there are rumors. Who is this man from Nazareth? Who is this man, Jesus? Well, some say he's Elijah. Some say he's this. Well, who do you say that I am? Right, all these questions. By what authority does he teach? Who is this? These things were hidden. They were still mysteries. And Jesus is encouraging his disciples, don't worry, a day's coming where they're gonna know. And what we're whispering about right now, you're gonna proclaim from the rooftops. What Jesus is pointing to is the death, crucifixion, burial, and resurrection and ascension that will render it absolutely definitive that he was and is the Messiah. And so he's saying, wait for that moment, right? Know that it's coming. And so we should have a glimpse of Pentecost when we think about this passage and picture these same disciples courageously standing in the streets before governors and kings and declaring with their whole hearts who Jesus was, saying we can't help but talk about who he is. They lived it out. They brought this part into fulfillment because Jesus made it fully revealed and it was declared from the rooftops. And I would tell you, church, we live in the same context. Right, we know the story. We know the story of the crucifixion, death, burial, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus, but there's still whispers about it. It still feels mysterious to this world. People still kind of wondering, yeah, but, but was he really who he said he was? Wasn't he just a good teacher? Was he really a Messiah? Is, is that really all true? Is that something you can truly believe in? And you and I need to take heart to these same words and remember that what is whispered in dark will be proclaimed in daylight. And you and I have a chance to declare it from rooftops as well. Because let me assure you, this Jesus who is Messiah, he is going to return. And there will be a day upon his return where he reveals himself not as some innocent baby in a manger, but as a rider on a great white horse 
whose eyes are like blazing fire and his name is King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Let me assure you, there will be a day where every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord. And we can proclaim that from the rooftops with joyful praise. And that's exactly what he's called us to do. And because of that assurance, we always have a reason to sing. So here's how I wanna try to wrap all that up. Here's how we're gonna close our time. As I told you at the beginning, I want us to consider this not just from the vintage point of philosophy and teaching, but through the word of testimony. And as I was researching so many of these stories of brothers and sisters that have endured such persecution and, and saw the testimony of joy that they exhibit, I came across one that really kind of grabbed my attention that I want to share with you. We've got a video of about five to six minutes long. It's a lady by the name of Helen Berhani who endured incredible persecution because of her faith. But as you'll see through this video, even in the midst of such hardship, she maintained that spirit of joy. She always found a reason to preach and proclaim what Jesus had done. She always had a reason to sing. And so let's watch her story, then I'll come up and conclude us. The bus stopped, taxi stopped, just it's around 8 o'clock. The whole area is just quiet, so only you can hear my, my voice. So there are 600, 700 around people they gather. So when I start telling about the gospel, people they start crying. Even Muslims continue. Nobody strong stone just keep silent crying but the government they arrest me at the time. they say we must put her far from the city so she can't pray she can't do anything there is around 23 metal shipping containers when we came closer to the container, I saw young people, they started peeling us. The girl, he came and he opened one container, he pushed us in. The container was clean, it has small insects. So he starts crunch your body. We are asking, where is the light? So he said, no, where is the light? In the night, it's extremely cold. Just I say, the only we can do now, we sing. We have no toilet, we have no nothing. We sleep on the floor and I'm hungry to tell people about the gospel. The word of God, he have power. So I say, God help me, give me word. So all the time I'm writing four, five letters every day for prisoners. I have been for two years now. They asked me, Helen, where is the Bible? So I told them, I have no Bible. So how how you remember this? You have been for two years, but you, you write like this. So how you remember this? So I told them, it's in my mind. In your mind? So they start beating me a lot in my head and long beating. So after word, he says, just go to the container, he kicked me. I stay the whole night, it's bloody pain. Early in the morning, they came again. But now you must stop teaching guards. I told him, no, if somebody came around my container, I'm preaching, I can't stop preaching. So he started taking this uh, stick. When he beat you with this stick, you feel the whole your body fire. They know where is the nerves. So my body starts shaking by, by itself. Helen, you must stop preaching guards. So just I kept silent, his eyes red and yeah, he beat me countless. Now it's the, the last one because I have no energy, I know. So just I 
start preparing myself to die. So uh, at last he's totally exhausted. So just I look at him. Yeah, you did your job. Also, I'm doing my job. So they took me to other container, the worst container. It's dark, I can't see anything. Just I'm standing and um, <laughs> start singing. Just doesn't matter. God gave me a new song. So just I'm singing the whole night. All the prisoners can hear. Thank you for everything, God. The bad toilet, cold, hot, everything because I, I love to worship him. He's my father. After the last uh, torture, I stay for eight months, but my situation just I'm very sick. They don't have enough medicine. They think I'm dying. They don't want you to die inside the prison. They don't want to take this kind of responsibility, so they send me home, but always security around me. God, please, I need to leave this country. I stay for 10 months treatment. Within one month, the Danish government accepted me. I'm, I'm start sing and write my own songs. A powerful word of testimony. And in those situations, a woman like that, faced with that sort of difficulty and persecution, continued to find a reason to sing and proclaim the good news of this gospel. So my hope this morning, church, is that her joy is contagious to us. Knowing that she represents so many brothers and sisters who face similar situations, and even in those difficult circumstances, have songs of praise well up within them to give thankfulness to our God. And so, so should we. We should join with all the earth and pour out our praise and speak of the greatness of our God who saves. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you. And we ask that you would continue to lead us and guide us in all seasons. Father, we pray continually for our brothers and sisters who find themselves in such difficult circumstances that you would strengthen them and encourage them. And Father, that by the word of their testimony, Father, no matter where we are in life, we would continue to give you praise. Father, that we would be grateful for who you are, that the joy of the gospel would well up in our hearts as we declare your goodness and your greatness to the world around us. Let us always be a people who find reason to sing. We pray all these things in Jesus' precious and holy name. Amen and amen.